Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now, here's Pastor Jeff. It's great to study God's Word with you, and in this podcast message, we're in Mark chapter 10. Hey, you may have heard about the five-year-old girl who was working fervently on a drawing. When her mother asked her what she was doing, she, the little girl replied, I'm drawing a picture of God. The mother smiled and gently said to her, but honey, no one knows what God looks like. Without looking up, the little girl responded, they will when I'm done. The passage we're about to consider then is not about how children see God, but rather how God sees children. When I was growing up, a popular sentiment, which included my parents, was that children should be seen and not heard. And there's some value to that because many parents were simply trying to teach their children to be considerate and respectful in the presence of adults. Today, many parents have swung completely in the opposite direction, and it seems as though everything revolves around their children who need to be the center of attention. Hey, somewhere in the middle of all that, there's a much-needed balance. As we're going to see here in our passage, Jesus has something to say about children and also how it connects to the gospel. So let's read these verses together, picking up in verse 13 of Mark 10. Then they brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. And when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to the disciples, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up into his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. The title of this message is, Jesus Loves the Little Children. Now, before we look more closely at these verses, let me point out a couple of things, if I may. This passage is also recorded in Matthew and Luke, but surprisingly, it's Mark's gospel that has the most information. That's unusual, seeing that Mark is the shortest gospel and that he tends to be briefer than the other gospel writers. Secondly, our last message was concerning marriage and divorce, and here now, the subject is children. I think it's safe to say that with divorce, it's most oftentimes the children who suffer the most. Many adults will testify that the most devastating event in their childhood or teenage years was when their parents got divorced. Let me also add that this is a familiar story, and because it's about little children, it might not appear to carry much doctrinal weight. However, it might surprise some of us that it's actually one of the more important salvation passages in the Gospels. In verse 13, we find that parents were bringing their little children to Jesus so that he could bless them. It was, in fact, a common practice for that day. Jewish parents liked to bring their small children to the local rabbis where they could lay their hands on them and bless them. You know, there was even a special day set aside for the blessing of children. It was the day just before Yom Kippur or the Jewish Day of Atonement. 
Today, we have many parents who have absolutely lost their minds bringing their children to schools and libraries where they will listen to stories being read by drag queens. And if that isn't crazy enough, those drag queens will oftentimes perform and dance for those little children. Other parents take their little children to gay pride events where the children are dressed in rainbow outfits holding signs that read pride. And now more and more parents are encouraging their little children to decide what gender they'd like to be, regardless of how God created them. We are absolutely living in a world that has gone stark, raving mad because it has rejected God. Lord have mercy. Well, the word that's used here for children in verse 13 refers to infants and toddlers, children who are helpless and in need of their parents to care for them and protect them. Like the parents here in our story, we need to bring our children to Jesus as well. So how do we do that? Well, I think you know it begins with us raising our children in the ways of the Lord, praying for them and teaching them to pray, reading the Bible to them and with them, and encouraging them to memorize Bible verses. And listen, it means taking them to church. Notice that I didn't say sending them to church, which is what some parents do. For part of my childhood, my parents would send me to church with my Christian aunt. I understand sending to children, sending children to church is better than nothing, but the ideal practice is for the family to attend church together. And dads, husbands, listen, you are the spiritual leader, and it's your responsibility to lead your family to the church. In many of our churches, we also have a special time of dedicating our babies and toddlers to the Lord. Not only do we see parents bringing their infants here to be blessed by the Lord and prayed for, as we see in the other Gospels, but we also find a model for this when Joseph and Mary brought their infant Jesus to the temple to be dedicated. At our baby dedications, we pray and ask God for that child's protection, their well-being, to watch over them as they grow, and then for their eventual salvation, hopefully at a very early age. We agree with Dr. James Dobson that, quote, as parents, we must make the salvation of our children our number one priority. Nothing else is more important, end quote. Along with that, we pray for the parents in that dedication service for raising their children in the Lord, that they would have wisdom and commitment to do so in a Christ-centered home filled with God's love. Hey, before you can train a child in the way that they should go, you must go that way yourself. So dedication services are as much for the parents as they are for the child. I love the words of John Wesley when he said, I learned more about Christianity from my mother than all of the theologians of England. What a great statement that is. Now, let me say that there is no biblical example or instructions for babies ever being water baptized, though some denominations do practice infant baptism. Baptism, listen, according to Scripture, is for those who, having heard and understood the gospel— receive Christ by faith, and then having been converted, take the step of water baptism as a public testimony of their Christian faith. Babies and infants are incapable of understanding the gospel, let alone the meaning of baptism. 
those who argue for infant baptism will point to New Testament verses which speak of a family or a household being baptized, as we read with Cornelius or the Philippian jailer in the book of Acts. However, if you study those passages carefully, you'll see that the entire household heard and believed and then were baptized. Baptism follows hearing and believing. Babies and infants can't understand and respond by faith, so it doesn't include them. Some understood those passages or understand those passages as the parents believing, and therefore the entire household is baptized, including infants, based on the faith of the parents. But again, I just have to say that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture regarding salvation and baptism, which is always on an individual basis. Let me also say a word about the home and the church when it comes to our children and their faith. I've heard many say that it's a responsibility of the parents and not the church to train our children in the Lord and help lead them to saving faith. Now, I don't disagree with that, but I also believe that the church does have a role. First and foremost, Christian parents have the God-given responsibility to raise their children in the Lord. Parents must not pass that responsibility on to the church. Obviously, children are under the influence and instruction of their parents on a daily basis, whereas a child may only be in church for a few hours or less each week. But along with that first and firm, strong foundation in the home, then the Christian church should also be, in my opinion, a support and reinforcement for guiding children spiritually. Many children receive Christ in Sunday school class or at a Christian church camp. Oftentimes, that's the fruit of the Christian parents' influence, but you know what? Sometimes it's the church stepping up where parents have failed. So we appreciate the help and the support of the church for our children. And if you're a pastor or a church leader, you must also understand the importance of your church having a solid, committed children's ministry where kids can learn Bible stories, memorize scriptures, and talk about their faith. You know, when Phil Jackson was the coach of the L.A. Lakers for several years, the Lakers won multiple championships, and Phil Jackson's signature approach was known as the triangle offense. Now, I confess, I have no idea what the triangle offense was or is, but I did enjoy watching Kobe Bryant and the Lakers win championships. What I do know is that the triangle offense for church consists of strong biblical teaching and gospel preaching, in other words, a strong pulpit ministry, then it consists of God-honoring and God-focused worship, and it consists, thirdly, of a Christ-centered children's ministry. If any of those triangle points fail, your church will definitely struggle. Well, coming back to verse 13, as parents were bringing their infants and toddlers to Jesus so that he might bless them, the disciples stepped in and began rebuking those parents. <laughs> That's crazy. The word there for rebuke is a strong word of reprimand. Now, why in the world would the disciples do that? If Jesus had been so patient with sinners, and he had, how much more would he patiently receive little children? Jesus repeatedly expressed his affection for children. Remember in the previous chapter, he had taken a small child into his arms as an illustration of humility and dependence. Later on, during his triumphal entrance into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, the children praised him, saying, Hosanna to the son of David. 
Remember when the religious leaders tried to rebuke Jesus for allowing the children to praise him like that, he responded by saying, out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants, God brings forth praise. Sad to say, the disciples had the ministry of sending people away. Remember the feeding of the 5,000, and as evening was drawing near, the disciples asked Jesus to send the people away so they could go get something to eat. But Jesus didn't send the people away, and instead he said to his disciples, you give them something to eat. Later on, when Jesus and the disciples traveled to the region of Tyre and Sidon, a woman with a demon-possessed daughter came to Jesus and pleaded with him to heal her daughter. But the disciples said to Jesus, send her away. She's bothering us. Oh my. Once again, Jesus didn't send her away and instead he drew out her faith and ultimately healed her daughter. Here now, happy parents are bringing their small children to Jesus to be blessed and prayed for. And once again, the disciples are busy trying to send people away. I hope and pray that none of us has the ministry of sending people away. Our lives are either a bridge or a barrier to Jesus. So once again, we ask, why would the disciples do this? Well, I guess one possible reason is they thought that Jesus was swamped and being bothered, so they thought maybe they needed to run interference for him. Perhaps they thought Jesus had had enough. Another reason might be that the disciples themselves had had enough, and you know what? That seems more likely. People were constantly flocking to Jesus, and the disciples really, quite honestly, didn't know how to handle it. Perhaps like my parents, the disciples thought that children should be seen but not heard. Either way, in verse 14, when Jesus saw what they were doing, he became greatly displeased. That wording is also very strong in the Greek, and it means that Jesus became indignant. He was upset, not with the parents bringing the children, but with the disciples trying to keep the children away. Jesus said to them, let the children come, don't hinder them, the kingdom belongs to them. So then, what did Jesus mean when he said the kingdom belongs to them? Once again, remember, these children were infants and toddlers, incapable of understanding the gospel or believing it by faith. So listen, please. While the Bible clearly teaches that salvation is by grace through faith alone, God extends a special grace and protection to little children before the age of accountability. Now, please understand that Jesus was not denying the sin nature of those small children. As cute and cuddly as our tiny little children and grandchildren are, they're all born with the sin nature, which has been inherited from Adam. In Psalm 51.5, David wrote, In sin my mother did conceive me, and I was brought forth in iniquity. Not exactly the best verse to write on that Mother's Day card for your mom. In Romans 3, Paul writes that there is none righteous, no, not one. So Jesus wasn't denying any of that. He wasn't saying that the little children were in the kingdom because they're innocent. There's definitely a moral innocence there, but we're all still born with the sin nature. Some have suggested that little children are included in God's kingdom because they've committed so few sins compared to other older children and adults. But again, James reminds us that just one sin is enough to separate us from God. So if these babies and infants are born in sin and unable to understand the gospel, how is it that Jesus says they belong to God's kingdom? Once again, Jesus 
is a, referring to a special grace here for all babies and infants before the age of accountability. The age of accountability is also called the age of innocence, and it means that children who die before having the ability to understand and respond to the gospel go directly into the presence of God and his kingdom, simply by God's grace and mercy. After the age of accountability, they become personally responsible to the gospel. For that reason, listen, I would call this special grace rather than calling it salvation. The reason being that after that child reaches an age of understanding, if they fail to respond to the gospel by faith, they will not go to heaven. So what we're reading about here isn't salvation in the truest sense. It's just God's special grace and protection until those children reach the age of accountability. That's special grace and care that safeguards children up to that point. So if and when that child receives Christ as their Savior by faith later on, that becomes salvation and eternal life. Conversely, if they never receive Christ by faith, that temporary grace in their childhood expires. All of this addresses important questions that many people have, like what happens to a baby who dies, or what about aborted babies and miscarriages? What happens to them? What about the child who is mentally handicapped and never reaches a point of being able to understand the gospel? Those are very important questions, and in my opinion, they're basically answered in Scripture, including these words of Jesus right here. Jesus describes all these infants as being part of the kingdom of God. I think one of the more helpful illustrations of this is found in the Old Testament passage of 2 Samuel 12. After King David committed adultery with Bathsheba, she became pregnant. David tried to fix the problem by arranging for Bathsheba's husband Uriah to die on the battlefield. Then in David's sinful thinking, Bathsheba could become his wife and that child would be fully theirs. However, Nathan the prophet confronted David and his sin on behalf of God and David finally confessed and repented. God forgave David, but there were consequences, including the death of that child that had been conceived with Bathsheba. When the baby became ill, David fasted and wept and pleaded with the Lord to spare the child's life, but a week later the child died. At that point, David rose up, worshipped the Lord, and finally ate some food. In his own words, David told his servants that while the baby was still alive, he fasted and prayed to the Lord for the child's life, hoping that God might spare the child. But then after the child died, David said this, listen, I cannot bring him back again. I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. David was expressing his confident assurance that one day he would be reunited with his little son in heaven. Now, some have suggested that David meant he would simply join his son one day in death and they would be buried together, but let's be real. What comfort is there in that? The hope of the believer in death is not being buried with their loved one in a cemetery. It's living with their loved one in heaven. David had a confident hope of seeing his baby son again. The only place where that hope is real is in heaven. Because of this hope, then, David was no longer mourning after the child died. His future assurance now sustained him. Back here in our passage, notice that Jesus spoke of these infants being a part of God's kingdom, regardless of where their parents stood spiritually. It wasn't based on their parents' faith. It was based solely on God's special grace. 
Randy Alcorn, in his excellent book called Heaven, writes on the same subject and says, I believe that God in his mercy and his special love for children covers them with Christ's blood. I agree. So listen, please. This special grace then includes all babies, those who are miscarried, those who are aborted, those whose parents are atheists, those whose parents are Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists or belong to a cult. It also includes those who are mentally handicapped and never never able to reach the age of understanding. So we've been talking about the age of accountability, and of course, many people want to know, what age is that? The fact is, the Bible does not specify an age of accountability, clearly for the simple reason that it varies among young children. I've heard some say, well, it, it's probably 13, based on the Jewish culture, and a boy becoming a man at his bar mitzvah, and then Jewish girls... Uh, become women at the age of 12 at their bat mitzvah. Others suggest that it comes earlier or later than that. Hey, we don't know. C.H. Spurgeon believed that by the age of five, a child was capable of choosing Christ. And I agree with that in general, but again, it's not true of every five-year-old. Each child is different, and every child's ability to comprehend is different. But I would agree, in most cases, children who are five, six, and seven are quite capable of understanding the gospel. Either way, the age of accountability is the point of understanding. But listen, here's a needed warning. Don't believe the lie of the devil that younger children can't understand the gospel. Jesus wouldn't have used children as an example of believing faith if they were incapable. The best strategy for parents is to pray for your children regularly and talk to them about the gospel regularly until they do understand and respond. This brings us to another related question, especially in these crazy last days in which we are living. What happens to babies and small children when the rapture takes place? That's actually a good question, and let me start out by by saying that the Bible does not specifically answer that rapture-related question. Because of that, some Christian parents are worried that their infants and small children will be left behind. However, based on our discussion here, and under that same special grace, we would believe that all babies and small children before the age of accountability will be taken up in the rapture. Why wouldn't that same grace apply? Some have suggested that only the babies and small children of believers will be taken up, but that's inconsistent with what we see here. Let's remember, Jesus was including all these children that were being brought to him, regardless of where their parents were spiritually. So let me say it again, it has nothing to do with the parents' faith, it's all about God's grace. Now, some of those who believe that only the infants of Christians go up in the rapture point out that in the global flood uh, judgment of God in Genesis, outside of Noah's family, all unsaved humanity was destroyed in the flood, including the children. The same was true in God's judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah. Therefore, they conclude that the unsaved and their children will also face God's judgment in the end times. But here's the difference. The rapture is not God's judgment. It's God's grace before the judgment. The judgment then on earth begins with the tribulation after the rapture. So I believe that the children will also be included in the rapture, those little children who are before the age of understanding. But I will also say this, no one can be dogmatic about any of this, myself included. 
But we are certain of what we are certain of is that God is loving, merciful, and not willing that any should perish. Well, in verse 15, Jesus transitions the subject from children to the gospel. He now declares that anyone who desires to enter the kingdom of God must do so with a childlike faith. As we said earlier, these infants were helpless and dependent upon their parents for provision and protection. In the same way, any person truly desiring to receive Christ and enter the kingdom of heaven must also recognize that they are utterly helpless and hopeless. They must fully trust and depend upon God's love and grace for salvation. You know, the religion of Judaism, like all religions in the world today, was and is a religion of good works and earning your way to heaven. It's all about what people can do for God so that they deserve to go to heaven. Years ago, I attended the memorial service for one of my neighbors on the street where I lived. He had passed away, obviously, and that neighbor was a nice man, heavily involved in community activities, civic activities, uh, city council stuff, and just various activities like that. But I never saw him attend church on Sunday, and I never heard him speak of God. And I'm not judging him. I'm not saying he was unsaved. I'm simply saying I never saw or heard any evidence of a spiritual life. I went to his memorial service then, which was held at a denominational church, and the pastor began listing the many civic and community activities and accomplishments that my neighbor had done. And then the pastor actually said, for all of those achievements and more, we know that Mr. So-and-so is in heaven right now. And as I looked around the church, the people were smiling and nodding their heads in agreement. I literally wanted to stand up and yell, heresy! Our fallen flesh loves to think that we can earn our way into heaven with good deeds. But Jesus says that those who belong to the kingdom of God are like these little infants. They can't earn their way to heaven by good works or any other means. They're completely dependent upon God's grace. Earlier, I mentioned that the story is recorded in the first three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in Matthew and Mark, this story comes on the heels of Jesus talking about marriage and divorce. But interestingly, in Luke's gospel, this story that we're looking at comes right after Jesus spoke about the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, and right before the story of the rich young ruler. In the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector praying, Jesus described an unsaved Pharisee who prayed arrogantly before God, declaring how he didn't sin and how much he kept the law. But in contrast, that lowly tax collector beat his chest. He wouldn't even lift his eyes up towards heaven as he declared, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus then states that the humble sinner who confessed his sin was justified rather than the self-righteous religious leader. Then after the story that we've been studying comes the story of the rich young ruler who approached Jesus with a question about receiving eternal life. He also claimed to keep the whole law, but when Jesus challenged him to give his wealth to the poor and to follow Jesus, he went away sad because he was so wealthy. We read of his sorrow, but never of his repentance. So right in between those two accounts is this little sleeper story about the importance of having a childlike faith in order to enter the kingdom of God. A childlike faith of humility helplessness, and surrender. That arrogant Pharisee had none of that, and while the rich young ruler was perhaps not quite as arrogant, he was definitely trusting in his wealth and unwilling to trust in Christ alone. And in the middle of all that, Jesus talks about having the faith of a child to enter the kingdom.
This means that anyone hearing the gospel and desiring to respond must humble themselves like a child and trust in Jesus. When D.L. Moody had returned from preaching at a particular church, he reported that there were two and a half conversions. Someone asked him, do you mean two adults and one child? No, Moody said, I mean two children and one adult. A child converted is an entire life converted, whereas an adult converted is a life already half gone in many cases. You know, indeed, statistics show that 80% or more of those who come to Christ do so before the age of 21. The older a person gets, the more hardened their heart can become. Well, as we begin to wrap up here in verse 16, we read that Jesus took some of the children up into his arms and he blessed them. This story is recorded in the first three Gospels, but only Mark mentions this particular fact. The word used here for Jesus taking them up into his arms literally means that he wrapped them in his arms like we would cuddle a baby. Then the word for blessed is related to the word eulogy, which means to praise and speak well about someone. So Jesus blessed them by praising the children and praying for them. The greatest way we can demonstrate love for our children and grandchildren is by sharing God's love and the gospel with them. The fact that God's special grace is there to protect them until the age of accountability speaks volumes about our responsibility of leading them to Christ eternally and as soon as they're old enough to understand. Finally then, what about you? Have you trusted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord with a childlike faith? If not, Jesus says here in verse 15 that you cannot enter the kingdom of God. It requires a childlike faith and a childlike trust. You're never too old to have a childlike faith. So trust in Christ today while you still have time. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. 